Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. It's estimated anywhere from 1.8 to 2 million women have dropped out of the labor force due to the pandemic. And the participation of women in the workplace is the lowest since 1988. During the last 30 to 40 years, women's participation in the labor force has been a key amplifier in our GDP. I'll speak with Dr. Lauren Tucker, CEO of Do What Matters. Plus, WABE health reporter Sam Whitehead reflects on covering the pandemic heading into 2022. Certainly, Georgia has been, I think, a really fascinating place to cover the pandemic because we are a state that really is going through bigger transitions, right? We're not South Dakota and we're not California. We want to think about those as two ends of the political spectrum. And remember our friendly World Series wager with Houston Public Media's Craig Cohen? We'll hear from Craig later in the program. All that's next, but first, this. Atlanta City Councilmember Andre Dickens has taken the second spot for the November 30th runoff in the race for Atlanta's mayor. Dickens narrowly pulled ahead of former Atlanta Mayor Kasim Reed, who conceded yesterday. Reed sent his congratulations to Dickens and outgoing City Council President Felicia Moore, who won about 40 percent of the vote in Tuesday's election. In other news, attorneys representing the family of Ahmaud Arbery say black jurors were intentionally excluded from the nearly all-white jury. Only one member is black. Civil rights attorney Ben Crump said in a statement that the jury should reflect the coastal Brunswick community. Black residents make up more than a quarter of the population of Glenn County. Prosecutors tried to get Superior Court Judge Timothy Wamsley to reinstate several black jurors who had been dismissed. After hours of debate, Wamsley did not find intentional discrimination. Opening statements are now set to begin. Defense attorneys did not respond to WABE's request for comment. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's choice for NPR, I'm Rose Scott. Depending on the source, it's estimated anywhere from 1.8 to 2 million women dropped out of the labor force due to the pandemic. It's also reported that the participation of women in the workplace is the lowest since 1988. Now comes another report revealing women are struggling with their careers even more than last year. That information comes from the annual Women in the Workplace report from McKinsey & Company and the women's advocacy nonprofit Lean In. But we're going to talk more not only about those findings, but the overall state of women in America's workforce. I'm joined now by Dr. Lauren Tucker, CEO of Do What Matters. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rose. Glad to be here. Let's start with this, uh, Dr. Tucker. just want to get your thoughts regarding the pandemic and how it has impacted women who've dropped out of the workforce, particularly when you hear that 1.8 to 2 million uh, women that dropped out. Your thoughts on all of that? that? Maybe that's not surprising to you. It's not surprising, but it's shocking and it's concerning and it should concern all of us. We are becoming less 
competitive globally because women are not participating. As you mentioned, we're at a 30 year low of women's participation in the labor force. And, you know, during the last 30 to 40 years, women's participation in the labor force has been a key amplifier in our GDP. Mm-hmm. And it's also helped to raise the standard of living. So we need to get women back into the workforce, working moms back into the workforce. And that means we need to focus on what we what we like to call this century's issues. And that is childcare and women's empowerment in the workplace. Because if we don't do that, the entire country's uh, economic future is in jeopardy. So in other words, you're saying, yes, we know the pandemic still continues, but that's not the only metric that you're paying attention to. You're looking at child care issues. You're looking at equity, which we'll get into a little bit later in the work in the workplace, because all of that matters. It does. And, and we're really talking about, in broader terms, caregiving. Uh, women are the primary caregivers. We have a hugely aging population. Women are the primary caregivers there as well. So we need to focus on the issues that are going to help women get back into the workforce and live up to their fullest potential. Child care, uh, additional cha- you know, care for uh, the, the elderly, mm-hmm. as well as, you know, we, we talk about we talk about uh, health care for all as if somehow this is an issue that is from the 1950s and we have all these BS terms that people like love to throw at, 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 at folks that are uh, advocating for that, you know, whether it's, oh, it's socialism, it's communism. No, this is the 21st century and we're 21 years into it. We need to have modern, humane health care access because that is also a women's empowerment issue. How optimistic are you that that significant percentage, that 1.8 to 2 million, will actually return to the workforce? Well, you know, I just got out of a few meetings with some clients uh, this past week, and people are, like, like everyone, they're having a hard time getting people back to work. The jobs are there, and this is a knowledge and culture-based economy, and women are central to that work. So, you know, as I've told my clients, if we all built public policy and workplace policies around uh, the needs of working women and in the needs of working moms in particular, the entire uh, experience in corporate America, as well as in this in this country, would be more humane and uh, for everyone. Those are conversations you're having with your clients. I'm curious, uh, just from a personal level, Dr. Tucker, what conversations have you had with fellow women in general about not just the pandemic in their careers, but their overall state, how they feel about what they're going to be doing now? Because the pandemic has opened up a lot, pulled the blinds back for a lot of people to say, you know what, maybe I need to do something else or I'm getting a clearer picture of what I don't want to do, (laughs) you know? Yeah, I think here, here's what I think is is really happening, <clears throat> and and this is something that I've been trying to get out there by any means necessary. So thank you, Rose, for interviewing me, me today. But we have to have different conversations. The conversations that are happening, I don't care whether you're red, blue, or purple. The conversations we're having in state houses and governors' mansions and in Washington are just the wrong conversations. They're completely disconnected from the experiences that people are having on the ground today. And we need to change those conversations. And women's empowerment is at the center of that uh, new conversation that we need to have. They are going to be the key to driving our global competitiveness. And women know that, they know what they need, but they need to start talking about it that way and not getting caught up in this old school 20th century, um, you know, red versus blue, conservatives versus, uh, you know, liberal conversation. Because at the end of the day, our politics and our political conversations need to be different. And women need to join together to fight for what they need to reach their fullest potential in the 21st century, because that's what we're going to, to, to that, that's what we're going to need to do to be competitive globally. Well, look, Dr. Tucker, we're in this space now, particularly after last year with the social, the, the, the protests for social justice, racial justice. So now we're in this space of DEI land. And, and I've said this before, 
I don't know if there's another term. I'm kind of tired of DEI, and I'll tell people why because I'll get an email. You can talk about DEI all you want to, diversity, equity, and inclusion, but it's much more than check. I got I got this in our check this box, check this box, check out everyone wants. We're DEI. We're having all this stuff. But at the end of the day, it is about execution and it's about continuing that. Not just having one Zoom call with everybody in a company, listen to a DEI expert and then it's over. Well, you know, first of all, Rose, I completely agree with you. We are what we call an inclusion first organization. I will say this, we focus on using inclusion strategies to uncover the operational inefficiencies of corporate America. And that's really where we, our focus should be on reducing the, the, the operational inefficiencies that not only invite exclusion and bias to come in, but really diversity issues, um, you know, diversity issues and inclusion issues, they're just symptoms of these operational inefficiencies that corrode the creativity and innovation that this country needs to be globally competitive. And that means globally competitive in an increasingly multicultural, transcultural and global world, which we are in, whether you like it or not, you can argue, you can talk about walls and all kinds of things, but we have been in a global world and a global economy since Marco Polo brought noodles back from China. Really? Yes. I mean, you know, when you think about what happened in in the, the Renaissance and the Middle Ages, those were highly multicultural trade routes, uh, transcultural trade routes. We were already in a multicultural and transcultural and global world. So we need to start having conversations that are built in reality, not in the fakery of, of politics. Okay, but here we go. And, and I've had this conversation before. You can talk about initiatives all you want, and people will say, well, you can implement this, that, and the third in terms of, you know, your workplace, culture, and all that. But if there's no policy, if there's no legislation to back that up, when women and people of color or any other, you know, isms that we're all trying to face, when that happens, then it just, there's no... There's nothing for people then to fall back on. Not to say that you want to go initially file a lawsuit against your company or whatever, but what what are the resources? What's that structure that can uphold folks to do all those things that you just talked about to do in the workplace? But if there's no if there's nothing there to support them, then folks get discouraged and they leave the workplace. And we're talking about women. So exactly. So what we do is work with our clients, um, you know, work with corporations to redesign their processes and their systems that, you know, need to be renovated, need to be reinvented, not just because it's about diversity, equity and inclusion. Again, we're inclusion first, but because they are operational inefficiencies that are preventing companies from growing and being competitive. When we talk to CEOs and presidents about that, and we mm -hmm. say, and, the fo and our focus is on helping talent realize their fullest potential, um, we like to use the metaphor of canaries in the coal mine. And we're like, don't invite the canaries in until you get the coal mines working more efficiently. Because at the end of the day, it is about fixing the mines, not not the canaries, certainly, and not the coal and not the miners. We need to fix the mine. And that means systems and processes need to change in order to um, get the right people doing the right jobs, elevating their relevant differences so that we can create products, services, and content that that is what, what we like to call memorable, mm -hmm. meaningful, and remarkable to an increasingly multicultural and global market. The voice you hear is Dr. Lauren Tucker, CEO of Do What Matters. And we're talking about not only women in the workplace, that women have left the workplace, but what organizations can do to ensure that there is equity in the workplace. There was something curious about that report I read because it talked about how, I'm going to quote them here, at every step up the corporate ladder, women of color lose ground to white women and men of color. And I'm looking, and, and we'll have a link to this on our website, and I'm, and I'm looking at this graph here, and it's still... And I know you've just not lost on you when we talk about income inequality and, and when you look at the rate of what women earn on the dollar as opposed to, to men. That is something that got a little bit better, but not much. So here again, the question lies, how do we widen that gap for women of color, 
And then, and also white women and, and men of color. Is Are you going back to saying it's all about changing the mindset? Is that your answer? No. <laughs> no. Okay, I'm glad. We don't, we, we don't leave it to mindsets. What we do <laughs> is, yeah, we don't, yeah, mindsets are not good for us. What we do is come in and we put in procedures, policies, new policies in place to make, first of all, eliminate the ghost rules of the workplace, right? The, the goalposts are always moving on people. We want to make sure that we are what we call de-biasing processes, making sure that we're focusing on really getting the best talent in the right How jobs. do you do that? How do you tell a client to do that? Focusing you know, on it, the de-biases. <clears throat> And what we what we do is we show them how by doing that, we actually increase their operational efficiencies so that they can drive more growth. When we talk to CEOs and presidents, I always start out with, so what's your primary, what is your, what is your primary job to be done? Like for you, what is the job that you, that you probably top of your list? Mm -hmm. And inevitably they, they say growth. And what I always say is wrong. That is not your number one job. Your number one job is to make sure that uh, that talent, that you have the best talent that you can get. And getting the best talent, we, we have so many dumb ways of trying to hire smart people. And at the end of the day, we need to reinvent those ways to make sure our processes are truly um, de-biased, meaning that we're getting we're, we're judging on performance. We're hiring on performance-based criteria and not all of these, you know, referrals and relationships. And I would argue that it's not racism or sexism that is, 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 uh, that, is that is really creating these, these gaps and bringing in this exclusion and bias. It's cronyism and nepotism. Mm -hmm. If you look at a lot of that, it's cronyism and nepotism. We love comfort and familiarity. And we keep hiring the same people that over and over again. And we need, we design processes that actually short circuit and rewire. I have a question from a listener who wants to know, do you also relay this message to boards? Because, because sometimes Rose boards are the problem as well. Oh, the boards are absolutely the problem. We have had um, less access to boards. A lot of times we work with some independent companies that actually don't have boards. We're actually trying to get the boards put in place for uh, uh, governance uh, reasons as well. But boards need to change. They are primarily based, um, you know, board recruitment is primarily based on criteria that actually does not necessarily drive growth for the company. We need to get that message out that you really need people who understand this marketplace that we're in today. And largely, that's a lot of women. Women understand that. Women understand you know, consumerism. And that's what our economy is actually based on. We need to start seeing more women and more people of color on boards that understand the future of the marketplace. There in that report that we're talking about, there was something else that stood out to me and it talked about that women are rising to the moment as strong leaders, but their work is going unrecognized. And if those, if that is coming from a survey of women that they, that they polled here, then that goes back to what you've been talking about, what should directors or CEOs, let's start with the CEOs because they're the, they're the people that set the culture. Although I did have an argument with a CEO one time that told me that it wasn't their job to do that. That's another conversation. Oh, but okay. <laughs> yeah. He's wrong. He's wrong. Rose, I will just say he's wrong. Ah, uh, the Dr. Tucker. It was a woman that told me that. Very interesting, she, huh? She's wrong as well. <laughs> they're both wrong. All of them wrong. Yeah. Culture and talent primary job of every CEO. I agree. Um, but let's talk about that because that could lead into the, one of the other findings, which talked about burnout and burnout is obviously you've been, especially during the pandemic. And I'm going to use myself as an example, because I think it's only fair last year during 2020 and covering not only the pandemic and the protests. I lost my sister. I lost my brother. A lot of that. I experienced this but I still kept doing my job. And I talked to so many of my friends and, and colleagues, women, women of color, women in general, who felt the same way. There was this burnout, but they mm -hmm. felt like there was no support. Yes, yes. And one of the things that 
I will tell you that's critical to this. And I find it interesting. And actually your last comment about the person who said culture is my, not, my, not my job. I would argue that we are in this country suffering from a lack of real leadership, of really understanding what leadership looks like. And the primary job of leadership is to create vision. Mm-hmm. When we know where we're going, you know, have you ever been in a car where you, you haven't been, you're going to someplace you've never been before. Notice how long it seems to take to get to that place. <laughs> yeah. Right. Because you've never been there before. So you're not quite sure where you're going. You might have the GPS on, but you don't have landmarks that you recognize because you've never been there before. So it always seems to take you so much longer. When you go there again, you're like, why did I feel like it took like an hour when it's only 10 minutes? Mm-hmm. That, that is the key to good leadership and visioning, right? It's more exhausting when you don't have a vision, how you're plugging in as an individual employee, and it makes it very, very challenging. And of course, we all as individuals have a hard time envisioning how we're, how we're going to live after COVID. So that's a double whammy and makes it exhausting to even think about what we're doing every day. Well, and, and, and before we wrap up, Based on our, based on everything you've just said, and this goes back to that first question, then if we aren't seeing women coming back into the workplace, that 1.8 to 2 million, then how do you gauge the success and effectiveness of everything that you want companies to do as you just talked about? Because in order to do that, you got to have women in the workplace. Or do you think they make the changes and then they're able to attract and recruit because they'll have a different culture, they'll have different initiatives to getting more women within their organization and women in management positions. Is that what you're saying here? The critical piece is we work with one company at a time, making sure that they are positioned to win the war for talent so that they can get that. So they, they can drive the growth they need to drive and that will increase diversity and representation. Now, you know, I've talked to my, my clients and I've said, these are issues within this, this particular corporation that we can address but obviously public policy is a major partner in this mm-hmm. and we're not seeing the kind of support that corporations need to make sure that they can achieve that kind of workplace representation that's going to drive growth and increase their operational efficiencies. Let me ask you this. Client comes to you, the Rose Scott, you know, hotels for waiver cats. And I've, I, I'm, I've got some issues. And I say, look, help me with this. What's the first thing you tell me? Is there an analysis that you do with the, or some type of self-analysis or assessment that you do with the company or just with the company leaders? What's your process in all of this? We start with, a, with what we call a simple desired future question. We ask every, every person on the leadership team, and we also have a, a, a survey that does this with the general, the general employees. <clears throat> and what we ask is the miracle question. We said, if you were to go to sleep tonight and a miracle would happen hmm. and you wake up the next morning, tell us what the five things that you would see that would tell you that miracle had happened. And it's really interesting because most people are never asked that question. Most CEOs are really surprised at that question. Uh, the presidents are surprised at that question. But what it does is it starts to focus people on the future and not on the past. We focus a lot on the past in this country and it's not gonna get us anywhere, right? You can't drive using the rear view mirror. You gotta look out the windshield. So we get everybody focused on what is it that they will see as success when they wake up the next morning. And what we find actually is that there's a lot of consensus, not only among the leadership, but among employees and among multicultural employees, right? Mm -hmm. So what we find is there's a lot more consensus around where everybody wants to go. And I often say, you don't, you don't use a GPS to find out how you got lost. You use a (laughs) GPS to figure out where you want to go. Absolutely. And then we can debate side streets and expressways and tollways, et cetera. But let's have the right debates and let's focus on building solutions for the future rather than referencing problems of the past. Because, you know, finding out how you got lost it just it creates conditions under which everybody's blaming one another. And that's where we are as a country right now. We're spending so much time in the blame game. We're not getting anywhere. But can you but you do have to know some of the failure. If that's a correct word, failures or some of the challenges of that company in the past, though, correct? To, 
You don't we, you don't harbor, will, harbor on it, but we don't harbor it. But we start with where we want to go first, because sometimes where we want to go has nothing to do with all the reasons we got lost. Hmm. So we we start you know focusing on the solutions because we'll get there faster if we're not constantly looking in the rearview mirror. So there may be you know I talk about it this way. You don't you know all of us we go grocery shopping. Mm-hmm. Right. We either make a list in our heads or we make a list, an actual list. We don't make a grocery list based on what we don't want. There are 300,000 SKUs. You're not going to go into the <laughs> grocery store and go, oh, I don't want this. I don't want this. I don't want this. Right. But I like to say, you know, yes, I do have a problem. I've run out of milk or I do have a problem. I've run out of sugar. But I can tell you this. A Snickers bar is not related to any problem I've had. It's just <laughs> I want it. That's the future I see. So I'm going to put a Snickers bar in my GPS, right? So, you know, I think we have to really start to be much more solutions focused mm-hmm. because when we do that, we get to the we get to where we want to go faster. Mm. And that's the key. Someone also sent me an email saying, I'd love to hire your guest, but I bet she's expensive. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let me let me be clear. Um, yeah, we all have to eat and pay our rent. That's for sure. <laughs> There's your but answer, I, emailer. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say we are on a mission and it's about the mission, not the money. Um, I got it. You know, definitely. I got to pay my people. And I, I, I'm, I very much operate as inclusion first. Uh, with my team and I have a great multicultural team and they range from being very progressive and liberal to very conservative. Why I've got white men, I got black, uh, black women, I got people in between. Have you ever had um, to do an, uh, an assessment of your own company in terms of DEI and all that? I, I do it every day. <laughs> I do it every day because it is a daily, it's, a, it's like a daily affirmation. I think we all have to, and, and I've had, I've had my, my team push back on me when they feel like, I haven't heard them or they don't feel valued or what have you. And I'm willing to have those conversations because this, this company wouldn't work without them. Good so for them. I would, Good for them. Give them a raise, yeah. Dr. Tucker. I, listen, I, 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 I'm giving them almost the entire month of December off and uh, because they've worked hard really, you know, all year long. And my, my feeling is I can't do anything without them. And mm-hmm. I have to learn from them as much as they learn from me. So it's about the mission mm-hmm. and they understand the vision. That's my job is to make sure they understand the vision. So we are all rowing in the same direction, but also we're, contri- we're all contributing to that journey. So please, if anybody is interested in, in learning more about oh, us. Oh, don't try to plug your company on my show. Well, Dr. I, you know what's funny is I, I would say this, Rose, rather than plug the company, because quite frankly, I'm looking to like, you know, my, my whole team reminds me of my real job, my real ambition, which is get enough, fund my retirement and move to Panama. But, that's, yeah. but I will say this, we are about creating inclusion one company at a time. It is a mission, um, and we want to make sure that we can do our part. Sure. Dr. Lauren Tucker, CEO of Do What Matters, we've been talking about women in the workplace and whether or not we'll get back the 1.8 to 2 million women who left, who have left the workplace during the pandemic. Dr. Tucker will bring you back at the beginning of the year to focus on 2022. Thank you so much. Good conversation. Thank you very much for having me. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. You may recognize that theme. It's from WABE's podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? It debuted March 18th of 2020. And of course, it's a news and information podcast solely dedicated to the coronavirus pandemic. The host, as you also know, is WABE health reporter Sam Whitehead, and he's been a regular contributor to Closer Look during these last 20, what, 21 months now. He joins me, and we'll have some big news at the end of our conversation. Sam, welcome. Good to be with you, Rose. Let's begin here, because the description for Did You Wash Your Hands is this, quote, The coronavirus pandemic has us all asking a lot of questions. How long will I have to practice social distancing? 
Will there be a cure for COVID-19? Can I ever touch my face again? <laughs> WAB health reporter Sam Whitehead and guests will try to answer those questions. He'll talk with experts, public officials, journalists, and everyday people about how the coronavirus is affecting their lives. Close quote. Sam, my first question to you, have you done all of that? Have you gotten to do everything you want to do? You know, it's funny looking back at those questions because I think we have some like answers for them, which I don't necessarily think I thought we would have when we started out. So like we're still social distancing, yeah. right? Is there a cure for COVID-19? I mean, there are therapies that people are pretty excited about. There's one that was originally developed here at Emory University that I remember doing a story on back in February of 2020, before the podcast even started, an antiviral drug that's now been taken to market by Merck, um, which has shown some real promise. Um, you know, there's also things that we've discovered over the course of the pandemic, uh, remdesivir, people might have heard of that, you know, that have helped people from getting severely sick with COVID-19. The can I ever touch my face again seems a little quaint. <laughs> so um, I guess we have kind of answered some of those questions in ways which I, I didn't think um, we would be able to. And your question, did, did I get to do all I wanted to do? I mean, I think, yeah, there have been various points over the last 20 months when I have really had to check in with myself and think about the value of doing this podcast. And it's really hard, I think, to cover a story this big, you know, something as large as, as a pandemic in one or two stories, which is something that we often have to do as reporters, right? Mm -hmm. We go wrap three or four voices into a short four-minute produced piece, and like that's our take on this situation at this moment in time. With a project like the podcast, I have found it really helpful to really kind of zoom out. We have done 181 episodes wow. over the course of the last uh, 18, 20 months. It's like law and order. <laughs> that That is in law and order, you know, space. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot. And it's the kind of thing where I don't know how many like podcast completists we have out there in the audience who have listened to every episode. But my hope is that people, even if they've checked in every once in a while, got a little bit of a sense of where we were going with the pandemic, where we were at that current time and, and how it was affecting folks. Sam, when you think about 20 months ago, and you started covering this. And obviously you had no idea which way to approach it because none of us knew. Mm -hmm. But then as Georgia responded, like other states responded to the virus, I imagine that did influence your coverage and, and what angles you wanted to tackle. Yeah, I think for me too, this has been a real crash course, I think, in the power of journalism to really have an impact on the world. Certainly, I tried over the course of covering the pandemic, not just in the podcast, to make information public that wasn't necessarily readily available. You might remember back during the Trump administration, we would get these kinds of state level reports on how Georgia, Tennessee, all the states were doing with regards to disease spread in particular. Um, this was before we really had vaccines widely available. And I put in a public records request every week because this was data that the state was getting that the state was not readily sharing with the public. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think all reporters like to think that putting that kind of data out there holds public officials accountable in some way, shape, or form. I, I, I hope that did. But I also think, you know, there have been other reporters trying to do that over the course of the pandemic. And this is kind of a depressing thought, but it, it's really, I've wondered at times the kind of impact that it has had. Mm -hmm. You know, we have seen the way that elected and appointed officials in the state have responded to the pandemic. And a lot of it really does seem to be independent or not in consideration of criticism that they've gotten from reporters or the public. And so, Certainly, Georgia has been, I think, a really fascinating place to cover the pandemic because we are a state that really is going through bigger transitions, right? Mm -hmm. We're not South Dakota and we're not California. We want to think about those as two ends of the political spectrum. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a really fascinating place to cover the pandemic and not only because the CDC is here, right? We also have great public health resources mm -hmm. here, which has made covering the pandemic, I think, a lot. It's allowed us to uh, paint a more comprehensive picture, I think. Let's segue from that then into all the experts and all the guests that you've had. And I've said this before, you know, when you think about all of the medical institutions here, mm -hmm. Morehouse School of Medicine, Emory, uh, Georgia State, you know, right here in our, our area, there's some wonderful experts. We hear them nationally, but then we also know that we can reach out to them. And I do want to applaud all of them because they always made time for local media as well. 
Yeah, you know, I will say that before the pandemic really um, took over my beat as a health reporter, I didn't pay a lot of attention to public health. And I really came to understand, like you said, the the depth and the really breadth of knowledge that we have here at these institutions, both public and private here mm-hmm. in Georgia. You know, we've got CDC. We have very serious research institutions. We have big nonprofits like, mm-hmm. you know, the Task Force for Global Health, the Carter Center, people who are doing really amazing work. I mean, I've, I've had people tell me that they think Atlanta is the public health capital of the world. Oh. Right. And I think that we've really seen that over the course of the pandemic. What has really been interesting to me, which I don't know if people realize, is that a lot of the names that folks might, you know, have come to know over the course of the pandemic, you know, people like Carlos Del Rio, other folks at Emory, um, maybe folks at Grady, you know, there's that connection there because all these institutions are connected. A lot of these folks are people who have really made a name for themselves in HIV and doing HIV work for the last, you know, 20 to 30 years here in Atlanta. Atlanta's still one of the country's HIV hotspots. And so people might not think, okay, well, we have um, this respiratory virus and then we have HIV. Maybe they're not really the same. But if we want to pull back and say, hey, these are novel infectious agents, Mm -hmm. um, there's just so much knowledge here in the city That's a good thing to have when covering something like this. But you have faced some challenges as well. There have been some challenging aspects of covering this virus. It's hard to cover something like this. It's just hard personally, emotionally. There have been some conversations that I have had with people in darker times of the pandemic that don't really leave me feeling optimistic about (laughs) the way things are going, where things are going. So just kind of dealing with the subject matter and just the grave stakes that we're really dealing with here um, has has been hard personally. You know, it's even harder when you're working from home and you don't have, you know, your colleagues and co-workers there in the same space with you to help kind of share some of that burden. That's certainly been a challenge. Access has been a humongous challenge. Mm-hmm. We have seen that change over time as things really have opened up here in Georgia, just if we want to think about the state of public health emergency expiring, you know, there were measures put in place that really cut journalists off from information that should have been public. And I wasn't the only person dealing with that. Um, You know, certainly we have colleagues over at the AJC who are, I will admit, much more dogged than I was at trying to get information out there. And they did some of that. But I, I still think we haven't really had the access that we need to tell the full story of what happened when it happened. And I think that there might be this sense from people who are public figures that if we bat these requests down for long enough, people will give up. These stories will be told. We will have an accounting for how our state leaders handled the pandemic. That might come five years from now. That might come 10 years from now. But those books will be written. And you're talking about just access to data and current data. Access to data, access to records, access Mm -hmm. to emails. I I don't know if folks remember this, but uh, there was a pretty notable press conference that Governor Brian Kemp did about, this was many months ago, was that they they had just kind of realized um, there was so much asymptomatic transmission. Mm -hmm. I remember that. You know, um, I would love to see the internal communications that he had with public health experts and officials in the government at that time. We've not been able to get them. And so it's things like that where, um, you know, journalists have long memories. You're right about that. Speaking of data, though, needing to shift through all of that. I don't know about you. I love history. So I'll read books. I'll go back and read a speech from FDR. I love stuff like that. I do not particularly enjoy shifting through a lot of numbers Mm -hmm. and graphs and looking for spikes and trends and all that. But I know it's important for you having to do this because you have to do this a lot because we're this is where data is so important because Mm -hmm. it deals with people's lives. Did you ever get to a point where you you know, I'm just tired of looking through this this (laughs) graph and going to this table and inputting this to get this and. The hard part of it really was not necessarily the um, crunching the numbers or, you know, working with an Excel spreadsheet, but but the fact that prior to the Biden administration coming in and really changing the data landscape, especially with stuff coming out of CDC, we had people in the newsroom rows going and pulling one specific number from a website once a day for months. Mm. And if we missed a day or we didn't communicate well with each other about whose job it was to go pull that number, we didn't have that number. 
And there wasn't a really good way for us to go back and get that specific data point. And, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I think that the real challenge of covering this pandemic has been one of stamina and just really when you've had months and months and months of doing the same mundane task or it feels like telling the same mundane story, stopping and thinking to yourself, no, this has value. People want to hear me write the same story on numbers and where we are that maybe it feels like I've written a hundred times, but it's still something that people care about. I remember we used to every day give the hospitalization, Mm -hmm. new infections and deaths statistics every day. Mm -hmm. And I received an email from someone that said, I'm tired of hearing this. Why are you doing this? And I spoke about it. Mm -hmm. I said, well, you know, to the listener who emailed us, this is why we do it, because it's information. And then I got other emails saying, thank you, because this is the only way that I get an update. A woman wrote to me and said, I don't have cable. Mm -hmm. I listen to your show for news and information. That's why we do what we do. And that's why we gave those numbers every day for so long. Yeah, and I think it's it's really important to, um, I mean, I think what we've seen over the course of the pandemic is the way that private institutions and non-governmental institutions have really taken a big role in collecting and digesting that data. A lot of that, honestly, was just because the Trump administration was not doing stuff that now the Biden administration is. I mean, listeners can go to the CDC website now, and there's so many different ways to slice and dice the data. It's it's really impressive. But, you know, you had organizations essentially standing up data hubs from scratch because there was no other way for this information to make it out to the public. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of those have stood down over time um, just as attention has waned. And and what I'm really interested in, Rose, is, is when we kind of get to a point where there's going to be a day when someone makes the editorial call, you know what, let's not do that today. And then it's going to be two days in a row where we don't talk about mm-hmm. those numbers. And right, it's just I'm we're not necessarily going to acknowledge that there's some inflection point, some change happening, but there will be a time when sure. we don't do that every day. A moment ago, I mentioned at the core of this lives, people, Mm -hmm. we've had some compelling COVID-19 related personal stories on this program. Recall for you, if there are some personal stories, folks you interviewed that really stay with you to this day. I mean, I'm always just amazed that anyone will share a personal story with a journalist um, because, you know, we call them up out of the blue. We reach out to them on Facebook and... They don't know who we are. They don't know to trust us. I will say um, one person who I checked in with a few times um, over the course of the last year and a half was uh, a woman down in southwest Georgia um, who lost her daughter to COVID. Um, They had both been sick. Her daughter was 27 Mm -hmm. um, at the time, one of the youngest uh, COVID deaths in the state. Um, Certainly there have been more younger people who who have died since then. This was down near Albany, a place that was really the epicenter of the pandemic here in the country early on, um, if folks remember that time. It's just one of many personal conversations I've had on the show. It's really easy, I think, we were just talking about numbers, Mm -hmm. to forget that behind each one of those numbers is a person and people who love them. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to get kind of numb to that if you're just thinking about We've had, what, 5 million deaths globally this week? How do you even conceptualize that, yeah. right? And and so, you know, I think for me, what I have really tried to do is when I'm looking at the numbers or when I'm just tired of having to look at digits just, just to think, okay, well, these are, these are people and uh, they have families and people who love them. Did You Wash Your Hands debuted March of 2020? Now, unlike Law and Order, which will probably continue for the next 20 years, there's some news concerning Did You Wash Your Hands? Yeah, we are going to be taking what I will call a hiatus. So our final episode of the show was put out this week. It's this conversation to have that (laughs) kind of meta acknowledgement. (laughs) This is actually the final episode of this podcast under the kind of banner of Did You Wash Your Hands? The reason why is that I am going to be stepping away from my role as WABE's health reporter and actually joining the Closer Look family. What? Uh, Nobody told me. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm I'm very, very excited to let folks know I'm going to be joining your team as y'all's new senior producer. 
So what that means for the podcast is a little uncertain right now. The powers that be at WABE um, have acknowledged that this is a space that we want to keep. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we're in the process of hiring the person who's going to be our next health reporter. My hope is that they can re-engage in this space in some kind of way telling health stories that's not just COVID all the time under different branding. So to all our subscribers, don't unsubscribe. (laughs) As they say, watch this space, um, because at some point in time, hopefully in the near future, you'll be hearing a lot of great uh, health stories from Atlanta. Well, firstly, welcome. I'm very excited to have you. you join our team because we are a team. We're still small, but we'll continue to be mighty. So I'm very excited about having you on board, Sam. And then with all the podcasts we have here, Political Breakfast, Did You Wash Your Hands? Now we have The Brief. Uh, With all the content that we put out here at WABE, very proud of it and very proud of what you've been able to do, Sam, with this. It is not easy when you are the general and the troops. (laughs) (laughs) I know that. Mm-hmm. So um, what you've been able to do with Did You Wash Your Hands has just been simply not just informative and much needed for our community, but I do know your passion and dedication to this podcast. So thank you for that. And as we wrap up, Sam, what do you want folks to know about your dedication and passion to this project for 20 months? I just want to take a moment, too, to give a shout out to some of the folks um, who made this possible. Um, Stephen Key, a former producer here at WABE, was really instrumental in helping me get the show out back when we were five days a week early on, which was just a lot of work for one person. You know, and there have also been people here in the building who have really had faith in me to do this. Alex Helmick, who's our managing editor, and uh, Scott Wolfel, who's our chief content officer. It's hard to start any project not knowing where it's going to go. And there were times, especially in the early days, when it just felt, you know, like drinking from a fire hose with regards to all the COVID news coming in, where Mm -hmm. I I wasn't necessarily totally convinced that this was the best way for me to tell the story of the pandemic. I I think now that I'm at a point where I'm going to be stepping away from it, um, I look back at those moments and just really think I was wrong. The pandemic, something that is certainly going to be the subject of much academic study. Mm-hmm. I, I hope that a podcast like Did You Wash Your Hands, um, as long as we pay for the web hosting long enough <laughs> to keep it up, is going to be some kind of living document of, of what was happening. And I think that as journalists, like that is the very least that we can do for people is say, here is this moment that we're all living through. And here are some voices that might help you understand it. Sam Whitehead, host Emeritus of Did You Wash Your Hands podcast, <laughs> like WAB Health Reporter, now coming to Closer Look as our senior producer. Sam, thank you so much for taking the time, as always. I've said that a lot, and I've meant it, and I look forward to what we're going to do next. Me too. I'm excited. Thanks, Rose. Thanks, Sam. Closer Look continues as the city of Atlanta and Cobb County celebrate the world champion Atlanta Braves. Now, you may recall our very friendly World Series wager with Houston Public Media's Craig Cohen. He's the executive producer and host of Houston Matters. Here's our little friendly wager. Uh, The team that, I don't want to say loses, because, you know, we want to be positive. The team that doesn't win (laughs) the series Then that team's public media station, which is, would be y'all, and I guess you and maybe some other folks, y'all would wear, and I'm going to go ahead and put this out there, y'all are going to wear our WABE hat and T-shirt, and we'll send you some sure. socks. And you'll take a picture, and you'll, you'll put it on social media, and you'll say how great WABE, Public Broadcast in Atlanta, Closer Look with Rose Scott is. You know, I'm going to go ahead and put that on out there, okay? Just send me your, your shirt size and everything, and, you know, I got you. Okay, well, well, I think we can hold off on sharing shirt sizes till the series is over. But uh, I, uh, but, but uh, absolutely, I think that's a great idea, and we'll do the same uh, from our end. Uh, if if we should be so lucky as to see the Astros win the World Series in six games, as so many are predicting, or seven, or four or five, whatever it may be, uh, then we'll we'll see if we can't send some uh, some of our our swag your way and and have you do the same thing. 
Well, I think we all know the outcome. Here's a message from Craig Cohen from Houston Public Media. Hey there, WABE listeners. This is Craig Cohen, the host of Houston Matters from Houston Public Media. Congratulations on the Braves World Series Championship. As you may know, my show made a friendly wager with your Closer Look program, and Rose's team is sending some swag our way, which we will display proudly online in the coming days. Frankly, I see this as a win-win. You got the World Series victory, but we end up with free stuff from WABE. You know, we really should do this sort of thing more often. Again, congrats and best wishes, and maybe we'll see you in the series again next year. Thank you, Craig, and the Houston Astros for a great World Series. But now... I've paid my dues Time after time There they go, pitch on the way. He attacks and smokes one to deep left. This one's going supersonic. That is out of the ballpark. Whoa! Over the train tracks, it's 3-0 Atlanta. Pretty deep. Dansby, a rope to deep left field. That one's rising. Kiss it goodbye. A two-run bomb by Dansby. And it's 5-0 Atlanta on the strength of two tape measure shots. One from Jorge, one from Dansby. Back at the track. It's off the wall. Solaire digging around third. Here he comes. Freeman gives that one a ride. Deep central. And that ball is gone. Freddie Freeman leaves the yard. 7-0 Atlanta. Chopper out to Dansby. Dansby throws to first base. Is this happening? It is. The Atlanta Braves are world champions. The Atlanta Braves have won the 2021 World Series in six games over the Houston Astros. Pure euphoria down on the field. As they're bouncing all over the infield. Celebration going on on the field. And folks, this is what dreams are made of. You and fortune and everything that goes with it. I thank you all. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And, of course, if you missed any of today's program, it's always online, wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, catch Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Take it, Freddie Mercury and Queen. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.